0: We are now in the second week of our five-week series called Talking About How We Talk About Jesus. And in this series, we're focusing on how we talk about Jesus over what we say when we talk about Jesus. And don't get me wrong. What we say is very important. But how we go about saying it is also very important. Because if we're going to share the gospel, we want to do so in a way that first and foremost represents who Jesus is. And, and is also in accordance with how he would like us to share the gospel. Uh, and when we grasp how God has equipped us to share our faith, what we say will be a byproduct of following him. Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, I want to encourage you to go online and download it. Uh, it this sermon really builds upon that one. Uh, last week, just to recap, we talked about creating a culture of invitation. And we we looked at the come and see approach, inviting people to environments and spaces where they can encounter Jesus through the scriptures. So whether that's inviting someone to a Sunday service, whether that's inviting them to Alpha, whether that's inviting them to a small group or for a coffee, uh, we we go out and we say, come and see. Come and encounter Christ for yourself. Uh, Which is us simply copying what Jesus himself did. He invited people to follow him and figure it out along the way. And we also, as a community, we pray, and we pray earnestly, that God would make us into a prophetic community, that he would gift us so that our words uh, might be his words through us, uh, and that we might speak into the hearts of people in a way that we can't do by our natural knowledge alone. Uh, So I want to encourage you, go online, listen to that sermon, uh, because today I want to look at another approach to sharing our faith. It's the go and tell approach. And I think this goes hand-in-hand with asking people to come and see. Uh, They complement and complete one another. Uh, We want to be a community that invites people into our life together, but we also want to be a community that goes out with the good news of the gospel. It's both. we want to be creating environments where people can hear the gospel, but we also want to be uh, bringing the gospel into every sphere of our life, whether that's work or whether that's our families, whether that's traveling on B.C. ferries. Whatever it is, we take the gospel with us. Uh, today, our passage is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, Jesus in a pig farm with a demoniac. You know, It doesn't seem like the go-to text for evangelism. I get it, but there is... Tons in this passage for us to learn about. Uh, I've preached this passage before and preaching it again, there's just so much in here. And so we're going to focus on uh, what we learn about sharing our faith in this passage. And like last week, we're just going to walk through the passage and take in the sights along the way. You guys with me? All right. Uh, Open your Bibles then to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. They, Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb, a man with an unclean spirit. And if we jump quickly to verse 11, we read, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. I want you to go ahead and imagine a place that you have no desire to be whatsoever. Uh, It might be the dentist, you know. You know, and, and imagine everything that fills there, you know, the terror of getting a cavity. Or, or I don't know, it might be the Arctic. Like you just have a thing with snow and polar bears. Uh, but, you know, go ahead and imagine the place you do not want to be. Uh, but also try to imagine a place that to some capacity repulses you. Uh, so whether that's like being in the depths of a, su- a sewer system or, you know, a closed closet that you're locked in with moldy cheese. Like whatever it is, imagine a place that repulses you. For me... Uh, That place is Anaheim. You might be thinking, Anaheim? What's wrong with Anaheim? You know, you've got the white Californian beaches. You know, you've got great weather, the Mighty Ducks, Disney World. Uh, There's nothing wrong with Anaheim, California. I'm talking about Canada's own Anaheim, Saskatchewan. Population 218. Uh, Once known, however... A fantastic music festival, and back in my touring days with a band, we got invited to play this festival, and it was really cool because it lined up with a tour we were already on, and and there was actually like some big name acts on it, like the Rip Chords, and I know that means nothing to you guys, but we were really excited to play this festival. And so the day before, we we're playing in Saskatoon, and Anaheim was about a two-hour drive from Saskatoon. We figured no big deal, and as we were driving. Uh, and getting further and further into the middle of nowhere, and, the, you know, the roads started becoming dirt roads, uh, we began to wonder, you know, what have we gotten ourselves into? Uh, and we we learned, you know, from experience, like, if you blink, you will drive past Anaheim. Like, literally, one blink, it's gone. We drove past it five times trying to find this place. But eventually found it. We found the venue, and it was just, like, a pig's mess. Like, it was just a mess. But, you know, literally, it was a pig farm like with a stage set up and and, and sound system and um, pigs, like like mutated weird big pigs scattered around the field with like pig hooves, like interspliced, like just throughout the field, the weirdest venue I've ever been to in my life. And uh, as was our fashion, we showed up a little late and, you know, some other bands were already there, but there was no people. And we're wondering, what's going on? So we tracked down... Uh, The promoter, we found her, and we said, hey, you know, where's the people? And so, well, don't want you to worry, but, which is never a good start to a conversation. uh, Last week, uh, the police sort of raided the farm because there was a cocaine operation going on here. And word spread throughout the town, and no no one wants to come to the festival. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was just like being in the middle of nowhere Or being at a pig farm where it used to be a cocaine operation. But I feared for my life. Like, why do these people need pigs to do this thing? Uh, It was just like images of the Godfather, you know. And, And some bands actually stuck around and played. Like, we just left. I was like, there is no way I'm staying here any longer than I have to. Anaheim, Saskatchewan. Never, never going back. You couldn't pay me enough. Now, think of this scene in Mark's Gospel with me the country of the Gerasenes, a tomb, and pigs. Uh, I can't think of anything worse for Torah-practicing kosher-keeping uh, Jewish men. They're in the Gerasenes. This is Gentile region. This is unclean territory. This is the people that they separated themselves from on purpose. You know, the, the tombs. Uh, In their their law, if you touched a dead body or you walked over a tomb, you were ceremonially unclean for a full week. You couldn't enter into the temple. You couldn't worship. You were unclean. Uh, And don't even get them started about the pigs. You know, dirty, filthy animals not to be eaten, forbidden by God. This place would have been undesirable to them, even repulsive. It's no place for any Jewish person in their time. Uh, They might have even thought, that God had no interest in the garrisons. that this place was beyond God. And to add insult to injury, let's be honest, their, their welcoming committee isn't all that great either. It's not like they had someone there, you know, like a chauffeur welcoming them, you know, wearing the ancient equivalent of a tuxedo with a sign saying, you know, welcome Jesus and the disciples. It's not like they were led off to some nice kosher sensitive inn. You know, they're welcomed by a demoniac. Like this is not who you send to the airport to pick up your friends. But nonetheless... This is who welcomes them. And it's interesting. Mark doesn't even highlight how uncomfortable that must have been for Jesus and the disciples. He actually wants to focus on describing this man's condition. And it's completely heartbreaking. Look at verses 3 through 5. This man, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man, in the very real sense, is the living dead. He was beyond any possible help. Uh, He had been so dehumanized by evil that people resorted to treating him like an animal. They tried to bind him up with chains and shackles, but to no avail. He had a supernatural strength that could not be contained. They could not help him. He was beyond help, and he was a threat to society. So he got relegated to the tombs, but he was also a threat to himself. We read he was always crying and cutting himself. Underscore that. Always. This man... He was so traumatized by evil that he was beyond hope and beyond help. He is alone. He is suffering by himself in the tombs. He is as good as dead. And frankly, most of us, if not all of us, have never encountered someone like this. But I do think we know uh, what it's like to encounter people who make us think uh, they're beyond help. We have people in our lives when we think about sharing the gospel with them. Our gut response is to say, well, they would never believe. And so you don't share your faith with them. Or maybe you've shared your faith with them several times, but it's never gone well, and you say they're just, they'll just never believe. You think they're too hard-hearted, or they're, they're too arrogant, or they're too stubborn, or they're too self-absorbed, or they're too rich, or they're too cruel, or they're too far gone. They're too disinterested, and they'll just reject it. I can't help them. I can't help him, I can't, I can't help her. And what you're really saying is, I don't want to go to there, to that place of sharing my faith with them. You know, Talking to whoever it is you might have in mind, you may as well become a kosher-keeping Jew and head to the Garrisons. Uh, please, please hear me clearly. This sort of judgment is not yours to make. We don't get to determine who will be receptive to Jesus based on our observations of them. I don't care how many times you've shared the gospel with someone, you do not get to decide what their next response will be. And we don't get to stay from a, uh, you know, a safe distance from these sort of conversations just because they make us feel uncomfortable or awkward or because we think the person is beyond hope or help or saving. You never know how someone might respond until you go and you share. A while back, I met up with a friend of mine, Scott, uh, I think it was last year. He, he was actually my tour manager back in the day. And I, I hadn't seen Scott in about 10 years. And in that time, I'd become a Christian and went to seminary and became a pastor. And, and Scott, you know, he had, he had seen this online and, you know, through the Facebook. And uh, he, you know, heard passing comments from friends. And, you know, we were just talking pleasantries, catching up, seeing how things were going. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, look, I don't mean to offend you. I hope it doesn't offend you. But I'm still sort of waiting for you just to say psych on this whole Christian thing. Like, I feel like you're just playing one really long and weird practical joke on all of us. But, like, that's the Alistair I knew. Uh, And in a sense, he was right. Like, I played some epic practical jokes. I can't go into it today. Come talk to me. But um, if you asked my friends who knew me before I started following Jesus, will Alistair ever become a Christian, they'd say, no, no. If you asked me before I became a Christian, would you ever become a Christian? I would say no. Um, You know, I was the person, in a very real sense, that people didn't want to share their faith with. Like for 22 years, I never got invited to church. I never got told about Jesus by anyone. I can't blame people. Like I was far gone. I was a cruel and harsh person. I lived by eye for an eye. If you were my friend and you were good to me, I was good to you. But if you crossed me in any capacity, I set out on revenge. I only cared about myself. I only cared about partying. I only cared about playing music. I was a very selfish person. I don't blame people for thinking I was too far gone. Just so you know, uh, I'll let you in. This isn't a practical joke. I'm not. You, know, you guys aren't on a big elaborate prank on my friends. Uh, Jesus... Uh, <laughs> Caught on, thank you. Uh, Jesus grabbed a hold of my life in such a way that ever since I've clung to his feet. Uh, I'm one of the people that Jesus met in a place that few wanted to go. I'm one of the people that uh, would have been categorized as too far gone. Think about that. The person you think is too far gone might be someone's pastor 10 years from now. You can't fathom what God may have in store for them. And here's the truth. If you think someone is too far gone or too broken or too arrogant or whatever, it actually reveals that the gospel is too small to you. The gospel has the power to bring life out of death in the places and people we least expect. It's those who seem beyond hope or too hard-hearted that first follow Jesus. It's the prostitutes. It's the tax collectors. It's the wayward sons and daughters, uh, the adulterers. It's the possessed. It's it's the down-and-out nobodies. That's who the gospel first comes to, and that's often who first responds to the gospel. It comes to the people who live with the pigs in the pig farms. But you have to be willing to lay down your judgments and go to them and share the news. You have to be willing to cross those lines that make you uncomfortable. You have to be willing to go into the places that are undesirable to you. You have to be willing not to give up hope, even when it seems hopeless or the person's too far gone or too hard-hearted. Because Jesus doesn't write off the garrisons. He doesn't write off this hopeless man. And we'll see why that's of help to us. Look at verses 6 through 15. It's It's a long chunk. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him, and crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, the man, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demons, begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. There's so much that could be said about this, but for our purposes this morning, here's what needs to be emphasized. Jesus did what no one was capable of doing. Remember that this man was so uh, beyond help. He was possessed by evil. He was harming himself. He even begs Jesus, like, if you're going to expel these demons, at least keep them in the country. Like, Just let the familiar, even if it's evil, be nearby me. Like, he wasn't even ready for help himself. He didn't even believe that life could be possible without these demons. And when he encounters Christ's power, though, he goes from that hopeless, uh, tormented state to clothed in his right mind. And the transformation of his life was so apparent, uh, people can't wrap their heads around it, and it makes them afraid. Because something took place that they weren't able to accomplish themselves. And uh, something that they might have given up hope for long ago. You see, we don't trust uh, in our own power uh, to help people in dark places or people that seem too far gone to us. Nobody had the power or strength to help this man. It'll only ever be Jesus' power. Uh, When you go and enter into someone's life and you share the gospel with them, you're not going in your own power. If you are, it will be a disaster. You're going in Christ's power. And because of Christ, we can love the unlovable. We can touch the untouchable. That's why we can go into places no one wants to go. Uh, That's why we can go beyond ourselves and our own comforts. Because Jesus' power is inexhaustible. Jesus' power can bring, you know, light into the bleakest and darkest and most hopeless situations. And if that's true in that case, how much is his light available in people's lives who are simply not exhibiting all that much interest? To people who don't seem all that far gone, but people we're just afraid to share our faith with. But have you ever wondered, like just as a little aside, the pigs, why why the pigs? You know, like, all that bacon washed away. Why the 2,000 pigs? Uh, in the ancient world, uh, 2,000 pigs, I mean, that was a, an extravagant number. That was a lot of money. Um, that would have been a fortune. An average pig today goes for $200. I, I looked on Craigslist. I don't know why they're selling them on Craigslist, but $200, you can go buy yourself a pig. Um, I don't know how much you can go and turn and sell that for, but... 2,000 pigs, you're talking 400K. You know, just pig. And um, St. Jerome of the fourth century, he, he suggests that the destruction of the pigs was necessary so we could see the worth of one soul being saved. Now, Mark, I'm not sure if that was his point, but I think Jerome's onto something. And it's a strange uh, and beautiful suggestion. You're worth that many piggies to God. How, the question really is, how much would God pay for one soul? How far would God go for one person? And often, I think popular opinion really says, not that far. For example, when people say, if there's a God, and I die and I meet him, you know, God will either see I was a good person or he won't. And if he doesn't, I don't really want anything to do with that God anyways. I love when people tell me this, because it's a very telling statement. First, it shows that you actually don't think God would go all that far for us. Because you think he is so uninvolved in the world that you can only find out if there is or isn't a God once you die. And second, it shows that you believe that God won't go that far for us because he only rewards good people. So you're saying that God is a distant God who has set up this reward-based system. And that is not the gospel of Christ. God is utterly involved in the world. Uh, in Christ, God descended to be among us. God clothed himself in human flesh. You have to think about that. God becoming human. That would be about as appealing to him as it would for us to become slugs. You're talking about the infinite becoming finite. Descending. Or as the scholars like to say, condescending to become like us. And yet he does it. And he becomes like us, but he doesn't stay in the safe places. He goes to the garrisons. He's found in the dark and hopeless places. And if he's found there, he's found everywhere else, too. Uh, the, The Christian testimony is that God is deeply involved in creation and his world. That's how far he's willing to go for us. But he doesn't just go this far for good people. That might be justifiable. He doesn't just... He goes this far for the hopeless people. He goes this far for the down and out people. He goes this far for people who aren't even seeking him. And he'll pay whatever it costs to free them, even when they're not searching for it. God will go all the way to the cross. He'll go all the way to a place of humiliation and death, not just for good people, but as St. Paul says, for the weak and for the ungodly and even for sinners and enemies. That's when God loved us. That's when God died for us. He'll go all the way to that place for those type of people in order that they may receive mercy and forgiveness. That is how much God is willing to pay. And the man who was freed, he had a taste of this. You know, think about the impact this would have had of him. The impact of being freed, first of all. The impact of of new life, but the impact of being so loved by God, being that valuable to God, and seeing that God would go that far for him, even while he was possessed by evil, harming himself and others. And his response is just beautiful. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The man who once begged that Jesus at least keep the demons in the country doesn't even care that they're off the cliff now. He just begs that he might stay with Jesus. All this man wants is to be with Jesus. All he wants is to be with the one who has loved him. And you would think the people who witnessed this amazing thing would respond in the same way, but look at how they respond to this miracle. Verse seventeen: They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. When people say to me, "If I could just see a miracle, I don't know what. You know, maybe God opens up the sky, peekaboo, hello, you know, or like fireworks or something, um, then I would believe in God." I say, no, you wouldn't, because more often than not, it's simply not true. You see, this passage reminds us that people, and sometimes it's people you live near or the people you work with or the people you're related to, some people will see God do phenomenal things and still walk away. Some people will hear stories of God's mercy and forgiveness and transformation. Uh, they, they, They will witness people's lives utterly changed. And they'll still just carry on with their day and not believe in Jesus. And yet, Jesus, knowing that people will reject him, still says to this man who's been healed, Go home. Tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So again, let me stress this. How people respond to the gospel is not your responsibility. It's not up to you to determine what their answer will be. Your responsibility is simply to go and tell them the beautiful news of God's mercy towards people like us. And what does this man have to say about God's mercy? He doesn't have a ton of knowledge. He's not Jewish. He's not studied in the Torah. he, He has this one encounter, and it's enough. His story of Jesus' mercy upon him is enough. Knowing God's mercy in your life is all you need to know and all you need to share when you go into other people's lives and meet them where they are. One of the most powerful things you can share with someone is your story of encountering God's mercy. And you're thinking so loud right now. I can hear you saying, "Like, but my story is not that interesting. You know, I'm not... This crazy story, like it's just pretty, you know, found Jesus when I was three, and it's been pretty steady progression ever since. There's no such thing as a boring encounter of God's mercy. The mercy Jesus has given you is beautiful, and it's yours, and it's uniquely yours, and it is enough. You don't have to have some crazy, um, you know, story full of contrast. To to have a powerful story, you just have to have Jesus. Some of you know we occasionally have an event called Beer and Theology at the Sin Bin, because that's where you do these sort of things. And I love these nights. I absolutely love them. We get together with skeptics and atheists and people who've been to church and, you know, occasionally people who think aliens are in our midst. And and we just get together and we talk to God about our doubts and our questions uh, in a neutral environment over some drinks. And the last time we did this, I had the fortune of chatting with a guy named Bo. And Bo just asked brilliant questions. Very intellectual guy. And so I gave my best textbook answers. You know, I laid out the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the moral argument, the aesthetic argument, the ontological argument. You know, I, I gave him four years of seminary in like 5.5 minutes, and I didn't even give him a bill for it. And uh, I, I realized I was getting him nowhere closer to Jesus. We are just... We were just talking. And then this girl who was at the corner of the table um, piped up, and she hadn't talked the whole night. And she said, hey, can I just share how I started following Jesus? And Bo was really excited about it. He said, I would love to hear that. And she said, well, it didn't happen overnight. I was an atheist. uh, But I couldn't shake this desire to know Jesus. And slowly I had more and more of a sense that God wanted to be involved in my life. I can't fully explain it. There was no bright lights, no arguments to assuage all my doubts and questions. Just a slow progression towards a sense that God really does want to be involved in my life, that Jesus really is who he said he is, and that his mercy really can change me. That's all she said. That's all she had. And afterwards, there was kind of silence over the table, and Beau piped up all right, I just want to ask the table something. I think there's maybe 10 of us at the table. He said, what do you find more convincing? Alistair's arguments, right, very convincing, or this woman's story. And he looked at me like dead in the eyes, like, no offense, Alistair, but I'd take her story any day. Way more compelling. You see, your story of your encounter with Jesus will be compelling enough for people to listen to it. it will carry more force than any argument you can muster up. But it'll also be compelling enough for you to share. Because when you reflect on just how much mercy God has had on you, when you reflect how loved you are by Jesus, how can you keep it to yourself? You don't share out of guilt or out of obligation. You you share out of an overflow of God's love for you. Christ's mercy isn't just big enough for you. It's big enough for the world. And that's why Jesus doesn't allow this man to stay with him. He sends him out. And his one encounter with Jesus, that's all he'll ever have, was enough. Because he knew his mercy. And his mercy is such an unusual trait in our world. We know compassion. We know social compassion. Uh, but mercy, it's unmerited. It's undeserved. Think about this demoniac. He encounters the holiness of God embodied in Christ. And he is clothed and cloaked in evil, Christ could have slain him down on the spot and been perfectly just and right in doing so. But he doesn't. He has mercy on him. He frees him. He gives him new life. For no other reason than the fact that God chooses to show mercy on a damaged soul. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, that same mercy is available for us. God's mercies are new every morning. You can't out-sin the mercy of God. He will always pursue you. You only have to turn and relent. But where do we go then with our stories of mercy? That's the last thing we have to ask. Mark's text says anywhere. Nowhere is off limits. We learn that there's nowhere Jesus wouldn't go, which means there's nowhere he might not lead us. We have to be open to go wherever it is he may lead us, uh, no matter how uncomfortable we may initially be. Because he will be with us no matter where he sends us. But his command to this man, I think, is very telling. Uh, He says, go home to your friends. Go home to your friends. Start there. Start with the people God has already placed in your life. Share your story with them. Go out for coffee and say, I don't know if I've ever told you about how Jesus has changed my life, but if you're willing to listen for 10 minutes, I'd love to tell you about it. Go in even if you're nervous. Go into it even if you're afraid that they won't respond well because it's not for you to decide how they're going to respond. Your your responsibility is to simply go and tell and then maybe follow up by saying, come and see. Come and encounter Christ in these environments. So this week, I want to encourage you to go and tell people of God's mercy in your life. Pray for opportunities. Be faithful when God prompts you. And don't worry, because you don't go in your own power. You go with Christ and his power working in and through you. You go with the one who has gone uh, as far as you can fathom, to reclaim you as his own. You're going with the one who would lay down his own life simply for you because that's how valuable you are to him. And if you're here and you're figuring out, is Jesus really who he said he is? Um, And maybe today, maybe, just maybe you're thinking, um, I'd really like to know and experience this mercy. All you have to do is ask. Christ will give it abundantly.